Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmeyer along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael filling in this week for Bob Zaltzberg. Today we're talking about academic freedom. University professors and students around the state organized Howard Zinn Read-Ins this week. The Read-Ins celebrated the liberal historian's work but also served as a protest of academic censorship. Zinn's work first fueled a debate in Indiana when emails were leaked from Purdue University's president and governor Mitch Daniels that indicated Daniels wanted to ban one of Zinn's books, A People's History of the United States, from Indiana's classrooms. Today we're talking with educators and experts on Zinn's work about the importance of academic freedom. We hope you'll join the conversation as well. You can call at 812-855-0811 or toll free. The number is 1-877-285-WFIU. And of course, you can also join the live chat online at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition and send in your questions that way or send us a tweet at Noon Edition. Let's first of all uh, introduce our guests. On the phone, we have Deborah Menkart. She is the co-director of the Zen Education Project. Carl Weinberg is in the studio. He is a senior lecturer with the College of Arts and Sciences and an adjunct associate professor in the Department of History at Indiana University. Robert Kunzman is the associate dean for teacher education and a professor of curriculum and instruction with the School of Education at Indiana University. Welcome to all of you. Thanks so much. Thank Thank you you. so much for being here. Deborah. I'm hoping we can just get you involved right off the bat here and just explain a little bit about um, Zen and really what kind of historian he was, just for maybe folks in our audience who have never heard of his work. Right. Yes, Howard Zinn is actually uh, a really popular historian. His book, People's History of the United States, has sold over more more than 2 million copies, been translated into dozens of languages, and he uh, wrote his history book as a professor himself, realizing there needed to be a history book that told the story of uh, really the majority of the 99% of working people, uh, people of color, uh, women, uh, people who are traditionally left out of the textbooks that often just focus on wars and presidents and generals. And so that's why it was called A People's History of the United States and, and became popular because all of a sudden people said, finally I'm reading, you know, I can see myself in history and can see how, quote unquote, ordinary people can make history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a very, a very empowering story um, and much more interesting than the traditional textbooks. Why was his work then considered so controversial, if you can explain that? Sure. Uh, so if we're learning the traditional uh, narrative, which is still um, dominating in schools and textbooks, uh, and that the traditional narrative is that um, presidents uh, uh, and generals make history, and then we're allowed usually a few um, 
exceptions to that. So there's, uh, you know, if we look at African-American history, we're told that uh, Dr. King said four words, uh, I have a dream, and Rosa Parks <laughs> all by herself desegregated the buses. And so we're uh, told that we're getting a multicultural or people's history, but it's still a history of individuals. And when you, and that's true for any group, when you think of women, you think of uh, Latinos, there's usually one person we're allowed to learn about. Mm-hmm. When you read Howard Zinn's people's history, you realize that it's, it's movements of people, and you read how they organized and how they were successful and how they were not successful. So you learn how you, as an ordinary person, can also make change and how a democracy depends on us um, being involved. So it, it uh, very uh, directly engages people in a way that can challenge the status quo, enables us to be active citizens and challenge the status quo, which is why it's seen as threatening. Um, I should mention that this isn't the first time in Indiana that this has come up um, in the 1950s. The Indiana Textbook Commission, uh, there was a proposal to ban Robin Hood um, in elementary schools because <laughs> of the message that he would, uh, children would learn from his example. Um, and there's a wonderful story in Indiana of the Green Feather Movement of a group of Baptist students who came together and said that we are going to challenge uh, this McCarthyist uh, attack on on children's ability to think and learn, and they um, went to a poultry farm, collected feathers, dyed them green, and spread them all over the campuses of Indiana. That's a great story. It it is, and it's an important story of resistance, because oftentimes we're finding, when we're sharing the story about Mitch Daniels, people say, well, what do you expect, you know? And literally, we'll actually say, um, you know, not in Indiana, but elsewhere, you know, what do you expect? It's Indiana. And we like to point out that if there's oppression, there's usually usually in response to resistance, and uh, there's a whole history of resistance, obviously, in Indiana, as was exhibited with the Readins most recently. Deborah, what does the Zinn Education Project do? So we started uh, a little over five years ago, uh, actually, with uh, Howard Zinn and a former student of his who had been uh, so motivated by what he'd learned from his professor 30 years earlier that he uh, reached an age that he said, I want to figure out how I can give back and make a difference, and I want... Uh, to make sure that children throughout the country uh, have a chance to read outside the textbook and including people's history, but not just Howard Zinn's people's history, uh, many, many sources of people's stories. And so, long story short, uh, uh, Howard Zinn and uh, the founder, the co-founder of the project came together, invited Rethinking Schools and Teaching for Change, two organizations, nonprofit organizations, to come together and think about how do we bring resources for teaching people's history uh, to uh, middle and high school classrooms. And so uh, we decided to put uh, lessons and resources for bringing people's history to the classroom on a website, launched it uh, now just, uh, just five years ago, and the response was overwhelming. We now have 33,000 teachers registered for the website, many thousands more who use it, just access it as a database every day. Uh, we have 56,000 following us on Facebook. Um, so it's zinedproject.org, and it's literally a place that teachers can go and download lessons or get recommendations of resources. Um, and it's organized by time period, so whatever time period or theme you're teaching in history, uh, teachers can find lessons. And it's important to know that it's not just the content that's different, but it's also the pedagogy. It's what we call a people's pedagogy. It's hands-on. It's interactive. It in- involves inquiry, um, critical thinking, which is very no- different than Mitch Daniels' notion. One of Part of his quote was, um, how do we get rid of it? of people's history he meant before more young people are force-fed a totally false version of our history and 
when people engage with people's history in other texts, they're not being force-fed. They're being actually invited to question. The numbers to call in and join the program today, 855-0811, toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. Carl, I want to get you involved in the conversation. Just what Deborah was saying, uh, some of Daniels' comments, this anti-factual piece of work, totally false version, force-fed to our kids. But you uh, were not mentioned by name, but included in these emails because it was your class (laughs) that was held up as one where this work was being used. So how did you go about making that decision to include Zen's work? Well, in 2009, I was invited to be part of a project to get a National Endowment for Humanities teacher training summer institute on campus here at IU. And it was a project of the Center on Congress and the Center for the Study of History and Memory at IU. And I helped uh, write the grant proposal. We got the funding. And in early 2010, we started to put together a curriculum. And the subject for the Institute was social movements in modern America, which included the labor movement, the civil rights movement, and the feminist movement. And so um, I was asked to take the lead on starting to design the curriculum. I taught before a course on social movements. And I drew on some of the readings I'd used in the past, including some different social movement theories. It's actually a very interesting question to try to figure out how it is that social movements get started and how they actually work. It's much more complicated and interesting than people tend to think. Mm -hmm. And so for the opening session, I selected a group of readings that were actually meant to give the participants actually a range of ideas about how social movements work. By the way, these were 25 high school and middle school teachers from around the country, all highly talented, some fairly young, some uh, with years in the classroom. But we had something like 75 applicants. And so it was really a and we had to narrow it down to 25. It was quite a selective group. They were here, here for three weeks very intense experience. My part of the institute was teaching about the labor movement. In any case, in the opening session, we had a list of readings. One of them, indeed, was a chapter from Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. The funny thing is, the reason I put it in there was not necessarily to present it as the end-all and be-all of history, but to throw it in there as one alternative way of looking at social movements. And in fact, in this particular case, I had some some problems with the way that Zinn was presenting the beginnings of the civil rights movement. He tended to present it, to my mind, as a little bit too spontaneous and unorganized in comparison with some other scholarship that students or the teachers, that is, read later on in the session, uh, later on during those three weeks, that presented a different point of view. The whole idea was to get them to think for themselves. I think that's important, and that's a question I want to throw out to everybody here, is just how best do you incorporate Zen's work or these controversial pieces into a classroom? And I think it's interesting that you say it was one of many, and you didn't necessarily agree with it. So um, did you want to respond to that first? Well, sure. I mean, I I do know that uh, since the book has sold, as you say, more than two million copies, obviously quite a few people have read it. A lot of students have read it and faculty. I do know that one of the ways it's often used is as, as a way to spark conversation, to spark thought, to maybe contrast it with a more, quote unquote, traditional or conservative view of history. And uh, that's often used in, in American history classes. 
Um, Deborah's going to have to leave us shortly, so let's give her a crack at this, and then we'll say goodbye to her. Okay. Yes, and I was I was thinking I'd like to share, um, you know, another comment that, that Mitch Daniels made was that, uh, you know, he wanted to be assured that teachers in, in, in Indiana were not using um, the book, and <laughs> we certainly heard it was being used in this uh, professional development. We also have hundreds of teachers in, in Indiana registered for the Zen Education Project, and many more who registered after this controversy, you know, that teachers, you know, in many ways he was... Uh, very insulting and patronizing of teachers, assuming that people would not use multiple sources, assuming that teachers would not uh, read or use something, uh, any text critically. Um, there's one teacher, Shannon White, who's a public uh, school teacher in Indiana, who said, I use in in the classroom because I want to give a voice to those that have been silenced and marginalized in traditional history textbooks. Those are the voices that my students identify with the most. Identifying with history helps my students remember, learn from, and engage with it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really key is that we're not, teachers aren't looking to just provide one text for their students because then we're, you cannot contain all of history in one text and you give, you don't help them become critical readers, they don't become critical readers of the media if they learn that there's only one source for information. But it's certainly often held up that, uh, or people's history is, is critiqued as being biased, and Howard said absolutely. He was, you know, you have to choose what stories you're going to share. You can't put it all in one book. Um, and what we need to remember is that textbooks are biased too, and that mm-hmm. students need to learn to read everything with um, to understanding what the perspective is of who wrote it and why they wrote it and whose voices are included and whose are missing. Did you think there was an element of naivete in Mitch Daniels' comments? No, I think he was. Um, no, I, th- I think he was well informed. Um, I think he has a, a certain perspective, and he's trying to intimidate people. And there's been a whole history of intimidation. So again, Howard Zinn's not the only example. I think the Robin Hood is another example. Any time that people try to introduce a perspective that could be critical of the status quo, um, there's a lot of the the red baiting continues. Um, and so, and I think it was designed to intimidate, um, and so that's why I think the read-in was so helpful. People need to make a public response and a very visible response um, uh, to say that it, it's important that children have that freedom to think and to learn um, from multiple sources in K through 12, not just in higher education. We hear all the time from teachers who read um, people's history and other texts when they got to college and said it was the first time that history came alive for them, became meaningful, became relevant. And our belief is that people should not have to wait to college, and not even everyone gets to go to college. Why should people have to wait to college to have history become meaningful and interesting and engaging? Thank you. And Robert, I want to ask you just about these these texts that are considered biased. And as she was saying, you know, even Zen said, yeah, it's biased. How best do we incorporate those into the classroom? And I think in this case, it's probably important to distinguish K through 12 classroom versus university classroom. Well, I think Deborah's point about uh, the the value of exposing all students uh, prior to college to this type of critical thinking is an important one. Uh, citizenship uh, doesn't begin once you leave high school and and, uh, and enter college. We want all our, our students to be prepared to think as citizens. Certainly the the skills of the historian and looking at different perspectives and, and learning how to interpret and analyze and critique those perspectives uh, is an important element of the curriculum. But I would suggest that even more important is this broader civic purpose, that that citizens in a democracy need to be able to uh, encounter 
and uh, interpret and analyze a variety of perspectives. Uh, and in today's society, with the avalanche of information, you can't keep that from, from people. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's important is that they learn how to sift through it, mm-hmm. and they learn how to ask good questions. They learn how to meet arguments on their strongest terms, not just to criticize them out of hand and ignore them. And those are the skills of citizenship that our schools need to be inculcating, I believe, and that's what we need to be preparing our teachers to help students do. So it sounds like even in your class, Carl, going along with that, it's more about teaching this critical thinking. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things that, that really jumps out at me in uh, one of the emails from Mitch Daniels is the way he describes Zinn's work as anti-factual. That's the way that he slams Zinn Mm -hmm. with the idea that other historians are factual. Zinn is providing instead an interpretation, a slant, a bias, an agenda. And as other people have said, as Deborah had said, every single piece of history, every single piece of scholarship, for that matter, every single piece of news reporting has some kind of slant. And ultimately, it's because we're human beings and we see things through a certain perspective. And the idea is that we need to recognize that it's a matter of which perspective is going to be put forward. That's what this is about. It's not about facts versus interpretation. It's about which facts and whose voices uh, are going to be heard. From what I've read, a lot of historians, though, do say that his work is factual. It's more that they have trouble with the conclusions that Zen draws. Well, uh, as De- as Deborah said, when this book came out, and it, it's worth noting, it came out 33 years ago. It came out in 1980 at a time when a lot of the ideas he was raising were less common in, quote, unquote, standard textbooks uh, that they are today. Can you textbooks, give us an example? Well, sure. Let's see. Um, I mean, say the interpretation of post-Civil War Reconstruction, let's say. Uh, going back the mid-20th century, the traditional view of this is after the Civil War, blacks became free, <laughs> and uh, they were left to their own devices, and they were taken advantage of by unscrupulous northern politicians. The economy plummeted. The South was this sort of place of anarchy and disorder. And in fact, the implication was that black people were better off in slavery. Well, over the last 30 or 40 years, there's been a massive amount of scholarship revising that and, and clarifying and making more accurate the record of what happened, which is to say that, yeah, it was a very a messy period in some way, but there were huge gains that were made uh, by blacks and poor whites in the South. So that's an example of uh, change in the scholarship that certainly happened that's reflected in Zinn's book, but at that time was much less common. And still today, I would say in many places, the view one gets of uh, Reconstruction is this really sort of dark period of, of, of American history. Today on Noon Edition, we're talking about Howard Zinn and more broadly academic freedom. You can join the conversation 855-0811, toll free at 1-877-285-WFIU. You know, after the emails were released, Daniels called a press conference the next day and, and largely stood by what he had said in the emails but did clarify that he was talking about K through 12 classrooms. So I'm hoping, Robert, maybe you can help us sort of sort through the difference in the government's role in determining what's taught in college classrooms versus K through 12 classrooms. 
Well, I think it's fair to say that there's a different standard of academic freedom, and uh, certainly developmental considerations and the age age level of students needs to be taken into consideration, as well as the the notion of, of local control and oversight of public schools and the ways in which communities have a say in terms of the shape of their curriculum and the, the uh, preparation of their young people. That being said, um, <clears throat> I think that I would always be much more hesitant around dismissing uh, the possibility of reading certain books out of hand and saying up front this is this is simply uh, unacceptable for students to encounter and engage with uh, but rather as much as possible encouraging opportunities for students to learn how to encounter those texts learn how to encounter those ideas in a situation where you have uh, well-trained professionals who can help them to learn how to do that effectively it's not simply uh, opening the floodgates to all sorts of uh, texts and ideas uh, and, and not providing scaffolding or support, but rather uh, teachers helping students learn how to uh, develop those skills of citizenship and informed engagement and respectful engagement with different ideas, some of which they may very well not agree with. Um, and, and one of the essential fundamental skills of citizenship, I believe, is the idea of reasonable disagreement. Mm -hmm. Being able to, at the end of the day, uh, perhaps even uh, reject a particular perspective, but to recognize its reasonableness. And to be able to have that skill as a citizen is something that I think oftentimes gets left behind in our current culture in schools of focusing on uh, testing and quote-unquote factual knowledge. What do you think Daniels was afraid would happen if, if, if kids were exposed to this in K-12? It's too bad Deborah's not still on the phone. <laughs> I mean, I think that he was afraid that they would think and they might come to the quote-unquote wrong conclusions. And I think that that's very upsetting for him because he describes the sorts of readings, for instance, that we offered in our teacher training institute as, quote, anti-American leftist readings. Actually, his assistant, Scott Jenkins, referred to them that way. And so I think if, if, if he thinks these readings are anti-American, if he thinks t teaching people about uh, the labor movement in the meatpacking industry is anti-American, if he thinks teaching people how the civil rights movement uh, took place and how African-Americans fought for the rights, that's anti-American. And if he thinks that teaching about the feminist movement is anti-American, uh, you know, that, that suggests to me that he doesn't really want people to learn about what actually happened as that, uh, in that part of our history. That's precisely, those are precisely the kinds of things that Zinn writes about in his, you know, in his book. After these emails came out, we heard all the headlines were Daniels wants to censor what's being taught. But can it really be considered censorship when he never, I mean, Carl, he never came to you and said, do not teach this? Well, I mean, I, w I would go back to the text of one of the emails after Scott Jenkins sent him, apparently did a Google search, I'm guessing, and found this particular teaching institute. Who knows what else he found? Uh, I'm guessing it wasn't the only thing. Once he found that and he sent that email to, uh, to Governor Daniels, Daniels said, this crap should not be accepted for any credit by the state. No student will be any better taught because someone sat through this session. That is to say, he was talking about professional development courses at universities, at IU, but presumably other ones. That means that is actually a reference to courses that university faculty teach and that high school or middle school teachers could take for professional development credit, which is to say his statement that this is really not about college teaching is, is not true. That's not what his email says. 
But is his email saying that the governor should have some role over professional development? And then should he? I mean, does the government have a role to play in deciding what counts towards professional development credit in Indiana? Well, well, certainly I think that the the state has a role in the um, consideration of curriculum and teacher preparation. What I would say is is that it it hardly seems appropriate that one person would make a uh, out of hand decision about what texts uh, should be included and what shouldn't. Uh, there, there's a process and there's a conversation that includes not only uh, <clears throat> people in the governor's uh, uh, group but also people at the state house, representatives, and communities themselves. And what this appeared to be was something uh, sort of much more uh, unitary in, in uh, approach. And I think that one of the things that it, it suggests to me is, is a lack of faith in, in teachers, to be able to recognize the ways in which this text is simply one of multiple perspectives, and to be able to have the skills to be able to help students to appreciate that as well. If, if our assumption is that all teachers do is to uh, put texts in front of students and let them have at it without any sort of uh, pedagogical support, then, then perhaps his fears are, are justified, but I would suggest that that's hardly what, what our teachers do. We talked to one of um, the co-editors who, who worked with Zen this week. He was at the Purdue Read-In, and I thought it was so interesting because even he, he wasn't advocating for teaching Zen's book mm-hmm. solely, making that just the text that you use in a history class, which maybe I was ignorant of the situation, but that's what I thought that the governor was getting at originally. Um, I mean, it's striking to me, too, if you look at the words he uses to describe these readings that he's, he's objected to. He calls them propaganda. Uh, another one of his staff refers to them as excrement. And then, he, and then Daniel says, we need a cleanup. I mean, all of this implies to me this is not some sort of well-considered objective evaluation of what will, be, what will uh, be the best sort of material to train teachers in Indiana, but it's a politically motivated sort of witch hunt. I'm afraid we we do need to take a break, but I want to remind our listeners before we head into break that you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU. And this week, we're talking about Howard Zinn and more broadly about academic freedom. You can join the conversation at 812-855-0811, toll free at 1-877-285-WFIU. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at wfiu.org news. 
Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire sitting in this week for Bob Salzberg along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. This week we're talking about Howard Zinn and academic freedom. We have Carl Weinberg in the studio. He is a senior lecturer with the College of Arts and Sciences and an adjunct associate professor with the Department of History at Indiana University. And Robert Koonsman, he's the associate dean for teacher teacher education and a professor of curriculum and instruction at the School of Education at Indiana University. You can join the conversation today, 855-0811, toll-free at 877-285-WFIU or online at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Let's go ahead and get right to the phones here. Wayne, go ahead with your question. Hi. With respect to fair presentation of facts, you are criticizing Mitch Daniels for lack of fairness, but everyone on your panel is a prosecutor. Where are the where are the defense the defense debaters? Where 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 is the defense for Mitch Daniel? Does does he get does he get to have a say? Sure, no, Wayne. I think I think that's a fair point that you bring up, and we did actually invite lots of folks who we hoped could represent his viewpoints on the panel, and all of them declined our invitation. And we reached out to Daniels's office for a comment, and what they said is they continue to support all viewpoints on their campus. So, And we are quoting him um, from emails that he and his staff wrote, so we're not making this stuff up. Yeah. So thank you, Wayne, for the call. We appreciate it. Um, Drew is on the line from Columbus. Drew, you're up next with your question. Go ahead. Thank you. Uh, I'll stand up for Mitch Daniels for just a moment. I would say that I have followed this matter, and I, uh, I find the assertion that he was engaging in genuine censorship to be a vast overstatement. I also have to say I'm skeptical about the picture that's being painted by your guests of education in the Indiana high school classrooms as being one in which multiple points of view are presented uh, in this sort of uh, broad measure of liberal learning so that students can develop critical thinking skills uh, by examining a variety of viewpoints. I'm skeptical for two reasons. Uh, First, I do not encounter many Indiana high school graduates who have well-developed critical thinking skills. Second, I very much doubt that uh, historical textbooks from a right-wing perspective would be embraced. Your guests could dispute me by recommending one. Yeah, Drew, let, let's turn that over to our to our panel here. Well, I, I guess what I, I would suggest is that um, there would not be uh, right-wing texts embraced any more than we should embrace left-wing texts, that this is about uh, critical examination, about learning those skills. And it, it certainly is true that there are many ways in which our public school curricula uh, do not fully prepare students right now for the roles and obligations of citizenship. But I would suggest that that's in large part because of the uh, misplaced priorities and perspectives that we currently have in our education system regarding curriculum and the emphasis and the opportunity to dig deeply into controversial issues and to help students learn how to negotiate and navigate them themselves. So so I, I wouldn't dispute that we have work to do, um, but I would also suggest that many of the powers that be educationally are, are pushing us in different directions than that. And- I myself think that there's a developmental issue. I, I don't believe 
that uh, a lot of students, uh, just from an age standpoint, are developmentally at the point where what we would genuinely call critical thinking is even an option for them developmentally. Yeah, I think we'll have to agree to disagree about that. I, I see evidence of that uh, as early as uh, elementary school in different ways, that, that teachers can lead students through all sorts of critical thinking uh, exercises, real-life real engagement in the classroom. And I think that, that one of the things that, that is clear is with a masterful teacher, uh, students can do a lot more than we often give them credit for. Uh, this is an opportunity for students to learn how to, to develop these skills, and uh, in, in many places, these, these things are happening. Drew, just small to... Scale, Small-scale studies like that often do show positive outcomes, but when applied more broadly, uh, the results are commonly disappointing, and that's because the selection of both the teachers and the students uh, for the studies results in a certain population being examined. But when applied more broadly, the results are very common. Carl, would you like to respond here before we move on? Yeah, sure. I think you raised some important points here. Um, On the multiple points of view, I think you're right that in most uh, public school, high school classrooms, uh, you probably don't get a a whole lot of this, and students probably don't come out with the sense uh, that they're great critical thinkers. But I think actually this is a result of a very long tradition of seeing public education, certainly history teaching, as part of producing patriotic Americans. And I think that this can be a real problem. Uh, That is, on the one hand, people are taught to love their country and everything that it's done. On the other hand, they're told that they're supposed to be critical thinkers. That's a pretty hard challenge to navigate. And and so that's part of the problem. As far as right-wing texts, um, that's an interesting point because I think texts that today would be considered right-wing were the dominant texts for the 20th century. And so it's true, I think, you're right, that the average text in U.S. history is more, you might say, liberal than it used to be. I would say that's because uh, it's more accurate. Uh, but, you know, we can agree to disagree on that, too. And following up on Drew's point, do, do you all feel like we do make, or teachers are making the same effort to include conservative voices in their classroom as perhaps liberal voices? You know, I, I think it, it runs the gamut, and it depends upon the the, the school and the teacher, uh, probably the community as well, mm-hmm. uh, where, where that's happening. But I think that one of the things that we find is that providing the opportunity to explore on both ends of the spectrum is is rarer than it should be, in the sense that textbooks right now are oftentimes the sort of watered-down, lowest common denominator, controversy-free approach, because they need to be approved uh, in, in state houses across the country. So, so certainly bringing more of those disparate voices into the curriculum is a, is a bonus. If I may, uh, in our in our teacher training institute, I have to point out that in that uh, on that web page that Scott Jenkins found and sent to Mitch Daniels, you will see that we included we included websites that were anti-union and pro-union. We included historic documents of people who were opposed to the civil rights movement and in favor of it. We actually did make an effort to include conservative voices there. Apparently, Daniels didn't notice. You know, I have a son who's in high school right now and actually studying U.S. history, and uh, we talk about it a lot. And I think 
something that we aren't talking about here is that the students themselves bring the liberal and, cons and conservative into the classroom, and um, we rehash a lot of debates that go on uh, in the in the classroom. So I think we do actually need to give the the students more credit and say yes, that conservative viewpoint is coming in with the students as well as the liberal viewpoint. It's it's as diverse as our own population. Uh, those students are so. That I just would comment on that to, to Drew, that it's not all teacher-driven by any means, especially by the time you get to high school. Um, it's, it's as diverse as our own population. The, the numbers to call if, if you have a question for our panel, 855-0811, toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. We're going to go to Amy now, who's been waiting patiently. Amy, go ahead with your question. Um, thanks. The, this isn't about Howard Zinn, but it is, I think, a pretty obvious case of what I would call censorship by the state, uh, particularly the Daniels administration, um, having to do with the interpretive centers at the state parks, which do have a lot of educational programs. And uh, during the Daniels administration, I worked one year seasonally at a state park and I didn't see the document, but during that time, it was made clear that there was an order, I guess, from Indianapolis that no nature center was to show Al Gore's film and any convenient truth. So, you know, I don't think that the Daniels administration was particularly interested in presenting the public with alternative viewpoints. I'm afraid I don't know about that case. Well, but someone might want to look into it to see if that ban is still in effect, because I think it's very unfortunate. And I'll take my comments off the air. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. I, I would just, I don't know anything about that particular case, but I would say that in the historical profession, we refer to those kinds of ways of educating the public as public history. And it's actually, in some ways, the most powerful form, that is most people learn their history by going to historic sites and museums and not by reading history books. And so the content of what is presented at a, at a state park or at a state museum is actually quite important in, in, in shaping the thought of people. So I think it's, it's very relevant to this discussion. That's a great point. And Bruce is on the line from Bloomington. Bruce, go ahead. Hello? Hi, Bruce. Go ahead with your question. Oh, yes. Uh, well, basically, it's the, all this worry and concern in the United States and the United States schools is uh, the uh, what students learn in the classroom uh, about history and social studies really doesn't have that great of an impact on them. We're not, uh, I'm not, I'm not really aware of any of the public schools that are really doing indoctrination. Uh, it's education, and even if it has a slant, if it's presented as education, uh, it's not going to have that effect. We've got a lot more important things to worry about in this country, that, uh, like what's in high school textbooks and Howard Zen. And uh, I, I don't know why we're wasting time on this. Um, <laughs> You know, the the big problem in this country is the media, but that's enough. <laughs> Thank you for the comment, Bruce. You know, I, I think it's interesting that, that to the extent that <clears throat> the idea of the media uh, as being a, a problem, to me, connects quite clearly 
to the notion of what it means to develop uh, critical civic literacy in our students, is being able to encounter the media and to be able to uh, make informed judgments about what we hear and what is uh, the narratives that are told to us. To me, there are a few things uh, more important than being able to develop that type of civic literacy in our young people as future citizens. We're talking about Howard Zinn today, and we're also talking about academic freedom. You can join the conversation, 855-0811, toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. I'm hoping to take the conversation away from Daniels a little bit here and just talk more broadly about who decides what's taught in classrooms. If we can talk about who decides what's taught in K through 12 classrooms, what role the state currently has in setting those academic standards and even choosing choosing the textbooks that they learn from. Robert? Well, as I alluded to earlier, the textbook adoption process is a pretty uh, a complicated one and, and one that extends even beyond the state's borders in terms of um, the way that textbook companies market uh, and promote their materials. It, it is undergoing a, a significant shift uh, as we go to more online formats and there's more flexibility. But I think that, that what we find is typically an avoidance of controversy and uh, a in, in some ways an avoidance of even identifying what the controversies are. That, it's, that, that history at its most inert is presented as a series of facts that students need to regurgitate. And I think that, that textbooks, unfortunately, uh, tend to, to lead in that direction. So, so the opportunity that, that our teachers have is to try and think about ways that they can, uh, if, if the textbook is required to be used, that they can supplement that. Uh, teachers have, have a, a significant amount of, of power uh, in the classroom uh, when, they're, when they develop the ability to uh, take curriculum that is uh, sort of imposed upon them, but then also create uh, opportunities to um, deepen the, the uh, discussion beyond uh, sort of the surface level. So I think that, that while, while you know, external forces certainly play a powerful role, there are opportunities for well-trained teachers to uh, still have a significant influence on their students uh, beyond that. It's an issue we've been talking about a lot, just mm-hmm. with the co- Common Core and what are mm-hmm. the new standards going to look like in Indiana. But with all of the standards, you mentioned supplementing. I mean, is there time when they're trying to teach all these other things? Is there a place to incorporate someone someone like Zen? You know, I, I, it is a lot harder. Um, and, and certainly uh, the, the sort of uh, hyper-focus on, on testing uh, that, that has dominated our schools in recent years uh, makes that even more difficult. Teachers feel under enormous pressure uh, in all sorts mm-hmm. of subject areas to, quote-unquote, cover the material, uh, which is sort of an ironic term to cover up things as opposed to uh, really give students the opportunity to, to uncover and engage uh, with a variety of perspectives. So I think it is, it is a, 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 a tremendous challenge, and it's one of the things that we work with quite a bit with our students in the School of Education is how to, uh, to operate within those constraints, but also to retain a, a clear sense of purpose that goes beyond simply uh, you know, regurgitating information and, and scoring well on a test. Okay. We have a couple folks on the on the line here we should get to. Ken, go ahead. I've, I've been listening to part of the conversation, but not all. And the question was um, regarding what teachers are able to teach. 
and I'm a retired teacher after nearly 40 years, and my kids are in teaching in a nearby community. And all I can really say is, why would anybody with the restrictions that have been placed on salaries, tenure, and everything else, and the freedom to actually teach, would anybody want to be in education in the state of Indiana today? It just seems to be a very, very sorry situation. I think we have some good folks who can address that here. Carl, is who, well, both of our people are, are teachers and Robert trains teachers. Thank you. I'll go back to the radio. Thanks, Ken. Well, since I'm not teaching in the public schools, but instead at, at, at the K through 12 schools, but instead at Indiana University, I'm not sure I'm the best person to answer it. I will say that I, you know, I uh, I share the caller's concern and I feel uh, for teachers in the public schools mm-hmm. and actually at this teacher training institute that we did in the summer of 2010, of course, we did have teachers from Indiana who were part of it. And so we did hear from them about the things that they go through. And I think that that uh, it's challenging for them. It was inspiring for them to learn about these social movements, but also challenging to think about, okay, how am I going to go back and fit this in into the curriculum that I already have, the state standards and the, the sort of relentless timeline that you've got when you teach one of these courses. And, I, and I've heard teachers talk uh, before about almost engaging in a kind of guerrilla action to, to try to figure out how to, to slip some things in so that they can create opportunities for students to do those kinds of uh, critical thinking exercises that, that many of us think is really what education is all about. So, uh, so, I, uh, so I can feel for, so I really do feel for teachers who are, who are in this situation. That's a tough road to hoe. I'd like to know from both of you what your reaction to the treatment of Glenda Ritz has been. Um, obviously, you know, it's been in the news quite a bit. She's not being included in meetings that she feels that she should be included in the lawsuit. Um, as as educate, as an educator and a person who uh, professionally cha- trains educators, what's been, what's been your reaction to that? Well, I guess what I would say is that it certainly seems like we're taking our eye off the ball, so to speak, uh, when when those types of politics uh, start to predominate the uh, Department of Education and the, and the process. It, it, it takes our attention away from really, you know, profound challenges in terms of funding, in terms of uh, helping our students to be well prepared for a changing global society. And I think that, that the ways in which uh, those politics play out um, ultimately uh, hurt us uh, in in ways that we will not see for years to come. Um, I think our students uh, ultimately pay the price, and thus our society pays the price. It's a dispiriting environment right now in, in many ways for teachers. And so what we find uh, with our uh, candidates uh, who are, who are uh, <clears throat> preparing to be teachers is that unless they have that passion uh, and that, that that profound desire to make a difference in the lives of young people, uh, it, it isn't a viable choice. Um, that, that that is ultimately uh, the motivation that they need to have going into the profession and, and a belief that, that they can still make a difference in the lives of young people. And, and thankfully, we, we still see plenty of that uh, optimism, and mm-hmm. uh, we, we certainly do all we can to encourage it, even while helping to prepare them for the realities that they'll face. So do you feel like the last two administrations have have given teachers that kind of respect? Well, you know, I, I would I, I would see it as a much broader um, uh, challenge than just uh, the political administrations in Indiana. I think there's been a shift uh, toward a a market oriented notion of education uh, that is, I think, help 
causing us to really lose much of what we hold dear in terms of public education and the way in which uh, it is um, by the people and for the people. And I think that, that this shift is something that as, as members of the community, you know, if, if you are, uh, you know, do your best to find out what's going on in your schools and to provide uh, support for your local schools, our teachers and our administrators need to feel as though their communities are behind them even while um, you know, generalizations are made that can't possibly be supported about all the ways that our schools are failing, because they're not. We only have a few minutes left in the program here. Eight, still have time for a couple more calls, though. 855-0811, toll-free at 1-877-285-WFIU. One of the professors we talked to this week at the read-in at Purdue equated academic freedom to freedom of speech. So I'd like to get your just general reaction to that, Carl. Well, I think that's true. I think that um, I think that anybody who is seeking to engage in real education has to be trusted to make decisions about their instruction and um, academic freedom. I suppose you you would say is not explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution. But I do think that it's very much akin to uh, to uh, to free speech. I do know that there are many people out there, and this goes back many decades, who feel that if majority of people in a school district feel a certain way, that therefore teachers should reflect that uh, that belief. And that certainly has come up uh, many times, say, with the issue of teaching evolution in the school, since many people don't believe in evolution. They believe that biology teachers shouldn't teach it and therefore don't have the freedom to make those decisions. But I, I think that's a dangerous road to go down. Um, and I think that, again, I feel for public school teachers who don't really have the academic freedom that, that, that we do at the college level. Uh, we, we really have quite a bit of freedom compared to people teaching at the elementary, middle school, or high school levels. I think your word choice, responsibility, is is interesting because that whenever you say responsibility, then they're there's a, there's a pro and a con of, of that. So what comes with that responsibility in terms of you know, I guess getting it right. Well, that's a good question. Uh, I I think that um, I think that anybody teaching, say, American history, has a responsibility to be acquainted with the literature, be acquainted with how uh, the historical liter- literature has changed uh, over you know over time, and so uh, to do their best to reflect that content in the classroom, just as a physicist would not be teaching that the Earth is at the center of the universe. A U.S. historian should be reflecting uh, things that historians have agreed on. I mean, I, I hate to bring Mitch back into it, but I looked at his book recently uh, called Keeping the Republic, published a couple of years ago, and I, he starts out with history. And he mentions, for instance, Thomas Jefferson uh, refers to him as, quote, the great advocate of the common man. That's a pretty common way to view Jefferson. There's some, there's certainly some truth to it, but I think most historians today would balk at that statement because, of course, Jefferson was a advocate of perhaps the propertied white common man, but certainly not African Americans, Native Americans, women uh, are excluded from that formula. And you start to see how even our uh, esteemed former governor, uh, in presenting a supposed fact as actually making a very clear interpretation. And I would say it's one that's that's fallen behind uh, the sort of uh, average judgment of, uh, of US, U.S. historians based on multiple facts that are now part of the mainstream. 
Okay. I'm afraid, unfortunately, we are out of time, so we have to end there. My thanks to our guests, Deborah Minkart, Carl Weinberg, and Robert Koonsman, and, of course, co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening today to Noon Edition with producers Emily Wright and Gretchen Frazee and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Have a great afternoon. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.